Just a quick announcement before you get into this episode of Cybersecurity Decoded. Our latest annual report is now available to download for free. That's free of fees and free of registration. You can just download it from selabs.uk slash AR. And if you want to know about threat intelligence, details of how we test security products, and find out who won in our security awards, grab it as soon as you can from selabs.uk slash AR. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Decoded. This is a Series 2 bonus episode featuring a full-length interview with Christian Seifert. Christian has worked in security for decades and most recently headed up Microsoft's email security program. His focus has been on protecting from social engineering attacks and handling post-breach situations. We talked about the challenges involved in email security, whether or not Microsoft can provide perfect all-round protection, and the state of email security testing, and in fact, security testing in general. This idea that Microsoft and Apple and any of the other, I guess, major platforms, not that there are many others, can you guys actually solve security? Your email um, services there, Windows Defender's got much better. You've got various AppGuard type functions. Could and should a platform, in your opinion, kind of fix everything uh, in its own right? A, a platform should um, m- most certainly help an organization um, uh, protect themselves from, from attacks and increase their security uh, posture. But I think a platform itself is not able to do that uh, by itself, right? I mean, I think it needs to be a partnership between the platform provider and the enterprise. Um, so, for instance, um, our products, of course, have a variety of uh, uh, protection uh, technology. In, in the email uh, case, right, protecting uh, customers from phish, spam, etc. Et uh, but we also provide then uh, a set of tools for the enterprise in order to investigate attacks, respond to attacks, to increase security posture. So I think it's really a, a combination of, of these two. If what you're saying is right, if if Microsoft locked Windows down and all the other services, the office services, to the point where things were completely secure, the the impact on the users would be maybe they can't do the things that they want to do. I'm thinking about things like mobile platforms, for example. So with iOS and Android, uh, things are very locked down. You know, malware is is it conceivable, but it's not in the same way as it can work with, say, a Mac or a PC. Um, because those platforms are locked down. But as a result, you and I can't do some of the things on a mobile phone that we would want to do. So we have to go to a Windows or, or Mac to do that. Well, I mean, I think these other platforms are, um, uh, there are certain capabilities uh, that um, uh, these platforms provide that allow security providers like Microsoft to hook in and provide protections, right? Like for, um, for iOS and Android, for instance, we are now having uh, security offerings uh, uh, for those platforms as well, because there is there's threats uh, that occur on, on these platforms, just like they are on Windows. Looking at the threats that affect business users, what challenges do email security services face? It's no longer enough just to stop spam, is it? Phishing attacks um, are becoming more sophisticated. 
I think the phishing attacks that we are uh, dealing with today, as opposed to many years ago, uh, are very different, uh, much harder to spot. Now, I think there is um, a training that, that users are able to go through. And for the enterprise, we have our uh, a training and simulation solution uh, that helps uh, end users to spot these sort of attacks. Um, but as I say, they're they're becoming much more sophisticated, right? And so I think there are certain types of attacks that probably you and I would fall uh, victims to uh, because they're they're not easy to spot. So think of like, hey, there is a, a compromised account uh, that now sends me uh, a mail that contains an OAuth link, right? So the the link itself actually. Um, points to a legitimate service. It actually points to the Microsoft service. Uh, and as I click on it, it would lead me to essentially a permission screen of an uh, app that the attacker has created that if I click through, would give that attacker um, access to my mail, access to my cloud resources. I think those sort of attacks are extremely difficult to spot. And so I think it is, is really essential to have co uh, comprehensive security solutions um, that have broad visibility across the entire enterprise. So not just looking at the email component, but also looking at what happens afterwards, right? Like, hey, um, user clicks on, on the link, maybe give, gives up their credentials, right? And so now, um, how are these credentials used? And so you really need to have a comprehensive so, uh, security solution with you know, defense in depth in order to defend against those sort of attacks. I, I don't think it's as easy anymore as, hey, we do training, we ask users to spot phishing attacks, and, and then we're good. Yes, and actually, um, even those who know what they're doing can easily be tricked, um, say, in, in Outlook on a Windows PC, but it's actually even harder when you start looking at mobile devices because you can't hover over links, for example, to see where they really go to. That, that's right. And, and I mean, I think mobile devices with kind of the, the limited uh, real estate state um, make and, and kind of the way users can interact with the application make that more difficult. But I think uh, um, the uh, client providers need to be able to surface the um, kind of UI indicators that, that would help users to make an assessment. But then again, um, it, it really comes back to having a comprehensive uh, security solution because we cannot rely on the user being able to stop, uh, spot that attack um, and, and not click on it. So, so we need to look at how do we prevent the mail from getting into the inbox? Uh, how do we train users to spot the mails? But then also what happens afterwards um, in kind of the post-breach scenario? Uh, how do we uh, detect those uh, and provide the SecOps with the information, uh, with the tools to uh, spot that and remediate quickly? That's great. And that leads me on to a very important question. How do you choose a good security solution? So um, obviously Microsoft has got its um, set up, um, Google's got its, and there are lots and lots of third party um, products and services available. Um, and of course, there are some tests out there um, which, which try to assess them. So how, how would you go about, if you were starting at square one, um, trying to work out which would be the best uh, products to get hold of? Well, I think, it, as I mentioned, uh, the security solutions really need to be integrated and, and cover the, the attack landscape across the entire kill chain, 
right? Like we want to make sure that the security solution essentially provides uh, defense in depth, right? So if if a male uh, gets incorrectly classified as good, like a fish male incorrectly classified as as good, well, what comes afterwards that protect? Uh, the enterprise. So I think it needs to be a comprehensive uh, security solution that that looks at you know mail, web, um, identity, um, and and those solutions should be integrated because I think there's a lot of value of uh, utilizing signals across the different products and services. Uh, so for instance, if uh, we're uh, thinking about a mail that uh, that comes in that has a link, um, well that link has a lot of information um, associated with it that allows us on the, the Microsoft side, pivot into data sources that allows us to give a, uh, get a good um, uh, security relevant signals from that information. So for instance, the IP address uh, that is associated on where the uh, link is hosted, the website is hosted, allows Microsoft, for instance, to pivot into Bing data, where we're able to now assess, well, how popular is that uh, that uh, website? What else is hosted on that IP address? Um, what are some of the queries uh, that are uh, used to find that website in the search engine? Um, and those are all threat relevant signals that we're able to leverage to protect customers. And the customer themselves would never be able to detect that just by looking at an email or knowing whether to click or not. So you're, you're providing a lot of backup security to those people who are going to fall for the, the phishing attacks. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, if, if I think about, you know, security uh, solutions uh, for, for a particular area like email, I think the third party tests are extremely valuable because I think it is an objective way executed by an independent third party like SC Labs um, that um, really allows customers to get an apples to apples comparison of the various security products. Now, one thing I would say there is tests are just one signal uh, that um, a customer should should utilize uh, in making a decision. Um, there is, uh, you know, analyst reports like Forrester and Gardner that that look at a particular uh, area and, and provide a comparative uh, analysis. Um, I would also recommend that customers sign up for a trial um, and, and try out the product, uh, do side by side comparison uh, to see for themselves. You're absolutely right. A security test is one data signal and and services like Office 365 and, and Google and Mimecast and Proofpoint and all those guys, they've all got lots of different configuration settings that can be used. So when a tester tests any kind of security service, really, they have to imagine what kind of organization that they're pretending to be. Because testing with default settings, again, it's, it's a valid thing to do because you're, you're showing how effective those default settings are. But I don't know if you've got any telemetry, but how many big organizations are likely to install Office 365 and not change any security settings at all? I'm, I'm suspe suspecting it's quite a low number. Well, I, I think what we are uh, working towards is ensuring that um, the uh, security settings are actually enabled by default. Um, so the product does work out of the box. There are certainly uh, kind of unique circumstances that uh, may necessitate some some customizations, and and we're providing, uh, you know, the tools and the reports 
that um, allow an enterprise to con configure uh, the product even further. So for instance, um, you're able to turn on a particular security feature essentially in silent mode uh, and see kind of how, how the, the product behaves if that uh, security uh, option were turned on. And so I think that allows uh, uh, customers to kind of ease into it, right? Um, uh, and uh, kind of shepherd the, the process through where first, hey, it get, gets turned into silent mode. Now they're getting the telemetry. They're able to assess, hey, how's the product behaving? And if the results look good, then they're able to turn it into, uh, you know, enforcing mode. And there's a, a quite a simple thing that people can do as well, isn't there? With quarantines, you, with a quarantine, you can restrict who has access to that. So maybe your analysts or your administrators can see malware or suspected malware that's been sent to a quarantine rather than allowing all users to dig through and, and maybe get tricked again into pulling something out. Yeah, that, that's a good point because I, I think, you know, we're in the email space. We're not just classifying, hey, is it bad or not? Because um, if you look at the bad uh, classification, there's a spectrum, right? We have, of course, uh, phishing attacks, uh, credential-based phishing attacks or uh, business email compromise uh, um, attempts. Uh, these are really security events, right? Um, or it poses security risk. We want to make sure that those sort of mails don't make it anywhere close into the user's inbox. Those should really go to uh, uh, the SecOps team uh, because it's a security relevant event. But then at the same time, uh, spam messages, uh, they're more a nuisance, right? Um, they're not necessarily a security relevant event. Um, and so those we we can deliver to the user in a, in a separate folder, a junk folder. Um, but we don't want to uh, send those to the SecOps because it's not necessarily a security relevant event. Um, the SecOps already has a lot of uh, um, alerts to deal with. And so we want to make sure that they are able to, that they get the cleanest signal possible around the security relevant events. And when, when a tester, any tester does a test of an email security service, how much attention should they pay to these different routes of, of threats or potential threats through the system? Well, I, I think they, they should um, pay quite a lot of attention to those. I know the SE Labs test uh, today is more around, hey, do we detect a, a bad mail or, or not, right? That's kind of the, a binary decision. But if we're thinking about the uh, customer experience, the um, the SecOps and, and how overloaded they are with, with alerts today, um, as well as the end users, I think a more nuanced assessment uh, would would be beneficial. Yeah, and actually, I completely agree. And, and you know, I'm not trying to sort of push SE Labs testing, but actually, we do look at the user experience. So we score more highly the further a, a product or service keeps the threat away from the user. So quarantining it um, where the admin can get to it is great. Quarantining it where the user can get to it is less good. So that's where configurations come in uh, to play. If if you're a small business and you've just installed Office 365, I'm not even sure quarantine is turned on by default, but if it is, I'm pretty sure users can get access to their own quarantines, whereas a larger organization with a, a SecOps team uh, may be inclined to configure it differently and have threats sent to a, a repository. Yeah, but Simon, one thing to, to uh, uh, take into consideration, if, if we put everything into a quarantine for the SecOps, that is a lot of volume, right? And, and it contains things like 
uh, spam messages that are not posing a security relevant event. Um, and so that leads to a lot of unnecessarily re response work uh, on the SecOps side. And so I think a, a more nuanced approach on evaluation would be uh, good where we're looking at, hey, the, the, the security relevant mails like fish, they're ending up in quarantine, whereas the more nuisance mails around spam end up in, in junk. I think that that would be the ideal experience. So when when you look at a security test, um, something that's been published on the Internet, could be on YouTube, could be on a PDF somewhere. What kind of things do you think you or others would look at to see if it's actually a useful test or whether it may be um, a, a bit of a guerrilla marketing thing from one of the vendors? Well, I mean, uh, I think, uh, first of all, is the methodology published? Um, and, and SE Labs, for instance, uh, uh, does that uh, because it allows us to um, assess, well, how is the, the test structured? Um, what, what are the various threat categories that are being tested? Um, how realistic are the test cases? Um, are there a sufficient number of samples in the test that allows us to make statistically meaningful uh, conclusions? So those are those are a couple of things that that we look at. That's that's an interesting point, the statistical one, and I, it's it's not one that I think is right or wrong, but it's something I've always struggled with with any kind of malware testing. Um, what tends to happen is some old guy that's been in the industry for thirty years says, well, whatever test is not statistically relevant because they haven't taken ten thousand bits of polymorphic malware and then replicated those twenty times and and so on. So when you when it's impossible to judge the total of a threat, it's like we can't say how many millions of malware exist today or this week or next month. How can a test be close to statistically relevant? Do you think? Well, I mean, I think it, it's it's really around sample size of the the test cases. Um, and you know, if I see tests that you know have a couple of dozens of of test cases per category. Uh, then th those are not statistically meaningful. I think it does need uh, several hundred, uh, if not thousand, test cases uh, to to get to that um, that bar. Um, now, one thing uh, that I haven't talked about yet is like how how representative are the test cases of real world scenarios, um, and that I think is a challenge in itself. Uh, because obviously, uh, if I think about SE Labs, you have a essentially a lab environment, a test environment, right? And so it is very different from what is experienced in, in the real world. Um, but what needs to happen as third-party uh, uh, testing vendors uh, create their methodology, they really need to work in partnership with the corporations, with the vendors that are being tested. Because I think as a third party tester, you have a kind of visibility into the threat landscape um, and you use that to, to make um, informed decisions on how to structure uh, your test. But I think the vendors that, that are working with customer escalations day to day have a different lens. And so I think it really comes down to a tight partnership to create test cases that represent the real world uh, as best as possible. And 
you and I, we've went through that uh, cycle last year where we looked at your uh, business email compromised uh, test cases, right? And we're iterated on that. Um, you took the feedback in and now that is incorporated into the adjusted uh, methodology. And I think that's exactly how it, it should work because there's a lot of expertise on both sides and we need to really need to come together to create the, the best test cases possible. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, please send a link to just one of your close colleagues. And that's it. Thank you for listening. And we hope to see you again soon.